This episode of Creative Control is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. If you've been listening to the podcast lately, you know that I've been falling down this rabbit hole of social media platforms and algorithms. But if you're not caught up, pause this. I promise I'll be here when you get back and listen to the last two episodes because they really tie into what I want to explore today. And that's government regulation of social media. We know social media companies aren't as forthright as they could be about how their platforms work. And we know social media has fundamentally impacted politics and our health. So what's the government doing about social media? That's really been the million-dollar question in the U.S. specifically. Top executives across Meta, Twitter, TikTok, YouTube, and Snap have all been grilled on Capitol Hill. Lawmakers have introduced bills here and there that try to take on things like addictive algorithms and surveillance advertising, but so far, nothing concrete has taken shape. The European Union is way ahead of us in regulating social media, so what will it take to catch up? And more importantly, what does effective regulation even look like? This is Creative Control. I'm your host, Casey Finey. Each week, I'll be unpacking the driving forces and people shaping the creator economy and what it all means for its future. As you can imagine, this is a complicated issue, but it's an important one to talk about, and I promise I got you, okay? We're going to sort through this together with, of course, the help of some experts like Dr. Joshua Tucker. Dr. Tucker is the co-director of NYU Center for Social Media and Politics, and when it comes to government regulation and social media, he'll be the first to tell you... There's absolutely a lot happening. I think the highest level overlay of this is that that conversation had been focused primarily around a couple of different things. One was whether or not the government should be mandating content regulation. So whether the government should be getting involved and telling the platforms that they had to regulate certain types of content. And of course, we do that all the time, right? Like child porn is not going to be allowed on on these kinds of platforms. It's not allowed on lots of things. So there was a big discussion about whether the government should be doing more in that regard. The second big question was about antitrust which was this question of whether the platforms had gotten too big and they were too powerful as political actors and they had too much control over society and they needed to be broken up. So then a third topic that's kind of near and dear to my heart has popped up recently since the release of the Facebook papers this fall, which is the question about how do people who don't work for the platforms, meaning all of us, (laughs) plus all of our elected officials who have to regulate and make policy, how do we learn about what's happening on these platforms? And how do we learn about the impact of these platforms on society? And this is loosely grouped under the the question of access to data. So how do we get people who will do research, who will try to learn and understand what the impact of these platforms are or what's even happening on these platforms, how do we get them access to that data in a way that respects people's privacy, but also understands the need of society to try to understand what the impact of these, you know, huge changes that have evolved in the last couple of decades on how people get information. So I think that's the third big question that people are talking about right now. Again, from your perspective, I mean, like, what is the impact right now? Because I find it interesting because we are very much still going through this. We're very much still learning on the fly in a way, because I don't think we've, even though a lot of these companies have been around for so long, they haven't amassed the influence that they have for a couple of years now. It's just been like, 
we know Facebook has been a thing, but it hasn't been this big of a thing. I mean, we know the the pitfalls of it now when it comes to, like the election and voter fraud and influencing, you know, even health. I mean, there's been so many from the Facebook papers you mentioned. I mean, clearly these platforms can have like a negative effect on people. So for I would just love to hear from you, like what have you seen as the impact of social media on us, on the public? We could go three hours on that question. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I think at the highest level, one of the things we've learned is that there is an entire kind of information ecosystem around the impact of social media on society, <laughs> which when you don't have rigorous scientific research, people will fill it. There are loads of people who are happy to talk all the time about what's happening on social media platforms based on observations, based on things they've heard, based on things they've heard from other people. And it's really hard to figure out what's happening on these platforms. It's really hard to figure out the impact of these platforms is on society. Um, and part of the reason it's hard is because they're enormous. There's mm -hmm. just a ton of data out there. To actually kind of study and understand at scale what's happening, you need access to that data and you also need really strong computational power to be able to do these kinds of things. So what we find over and over again in our research, so the research that we're doing at the NYU Center for Social Media and Politics, is we'll take some narrative that we've heard and we'll be like, oh, that sounds plausible. Let's go see if we can actually find out, is that actually happening? So the first time we tried to do this was around the rise in hate speech during the Trump campaign for president in 2016. A million stories about hate speech going up because of Trump online and how this is a huge problem, but with a big emphasis on the fact that it was increasing. And we went in and we actually at scale tried to find this. Of course you can find hate speech. Of course you can find spikes in hate speech. But it actually turned out when we looked at over a billion tweets over an entire two year period, that the narrative was wrong. It wasn't like a linear increase going up over time. What you were getting was lots of spikes. And these spikes would happen in response to particular incidents. But then the levels of hate speech would sort of re-equilibrate back down to where they had been before. Now, that's not to say it wasn't bad. <laughs> There's lots of hate speech. There was a lot of horrible stuff we found. Right. But the overall narrative that it increased was the wrong one. We looked again after the 2016 election. We looked at who was sharing fake news on Facebook. And if you remember, right after we first discovered fake news, there was, how were we going to solve the problem of fake news? We were going to do digital literacy in high schools. That was what was going to fix fake news, who was sharing fake news, because it's the kids who use social media, right? We did a study where we were able to link together people's Facebook data and the, uh, survey data about them from uh, participants who participated in a study with us. And what we found is that it was older people who were much more likely to share fake news, right? In fact, in our study, people over 65 on average shared seven times as many links to fake news websites as people from 18 to 29. And this just pattern kind of keeps repeating itself. So somebody says something, it kind of makes sense. Everybody starts to repeat it in the sort of punditocracy. And then we try to go out there and study it. And so that's why I think that this question of data access is just so crucial and why we kind of, when I get asked questions about what should be in regulation, what should be, how should the government be regulating social media companies? My answer is always data access is like the prime mover of this. Because I can't tell you what the regulation should look like if I don't know what's actually happening on the platforms. And the only way that those of us who don't work for the platforms are going to know what's happening on the platforms is if we have access to the data and if we can run the kinds of studies that we need to run to be able to try to get answers to these questions. I guess, like, how feasible do you think it actually will be? 
for to get access to this data? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think, to be very clear, first, I think public pressure is enormously important in this regard, right? So as you said, like platforms, it's these are platforms that have business models and none of their business models are based on, oh, we'd really like to have a bunch of, you know, highly, highly cited scientific papers made out of our data. That's not their core function, right? Someone like so, you could only dream. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So that's not the core function of the business model. But so things like public pressure, like outrage after the 2016 elections, this moves in one direction towards research. Outrage after the Cambridge Analytica scandal, it moves in the other direction towards privacy. So they were, the first point is they definitely respond to public pressure. The second thing I want to be clear about is that the platforms have made different moves to make data available for research. Twitter now has an academic API, right? It does things, you know, which is great. We were originally using Twitter's regular API for business. Now there's an academic, there's an API that, that had been set up for academics. I've been very fortunate to be able to work on a, on a huge study that involves a large team of independent academics working in conjunction with researchers at Facebook with the cooperation of Facebook to study the impact of Facebook and Instagram on the US 2020 election. Like, so the platforms do do things to support research. Why they do them is a question, but I think the key point is in terms of like my answer to where we need to be is that at the end of the day, all of these things are dependent on the cooperation of the platforms. The reason we're gonna get this amazing collection of papers out about Facebook's impact on the 2020 US election is because Mark Zuckerberg decided it would be a good idea to do that. I don't know why he decided it would be a good idea to do that. If I'm designing a society from scratch, I don't want to be in a world where I'm like, oh, well, we can learn about what happens if a billionaire decides it's a good idea to do that, right? Like, I think in democratic society, we should be learning about these things because the people decide it's important for us uh, to know about these things. And the Twitter API, it's great. Um, and it's fantastic that they do this stuff. And Twitter's done a lot of good stuff. Like they released all the tweets of all the Russian trolls. They've released these like COVID misinformation sets. They've been really cooperative. But, and this takes on big, I've been saying this for years, right? And now as of today, this moment, it takes on much bigger things. Twitter can change their mind. The company's about to go private and be owned by Elon Musk. Who knows if any of this stuff is going to continue under Musk? And so... You know, so this is not, I think, where we optimally, where we want to be as a society, where we want to be as a society is it's not dependent on the whims of Elon Musk or the whims of Mark Zuckerberg. But going back to your earlier question, we are we as a society regulate. And as you said, the EU is doing this already. We want to be doing this as the United States. And I'm very grateful for you for bringing me on your show here to give you a platform to talk to, uh, you know, creators who might not normally think about these kinds of things, but about the importance of making sure that we set up a structure whereby people who don't work for these companies and people who will put the results of the studies they do into the broad general knowledge, who people who will use scientific methods so you can check to see if, if you should trust the research or not, that's how we should be learning about the platforms because and as you said, they may not choose to do this. We don't know what Musk is going to choose to do, right? I don't know if Facebook will choose to replicate this study that they've done with us in 2024. I hope they will. But if we were in a situation where these were regulated, where government was requiring these things, I think that's the world we want to be in, not a world where we're reliant on a Facebook whistleblower to suddenly raise attention, you know, raise attention to these potential harms. 
Of course, Dr. Tucker is talking about Francis Haugen, the former Facebook data scientist turned whistleblower who released thousands of documents showing that Facebook and Instagram seem to be putting profits ahead of public safety. Haugen's disclosure marked a major shift in understanding how these platforms are shaping society, and she's made it very clear that something needs to be done at the federal level. Take a listen to part of her opening statement in front of Congress last year. During my time at Facebook, I came to realize a devastating truth. Almost no one outside of Facebook knows what happens inside of Facebook. The company intentionally hides vital information from the public, from the U.S. government, and from governments around the world. The documents I have provided to Congress prove that Facebook has repeatedly misled the public about what its own research reveals about the safety of children, the efficacy of its artificial intelligence systems, and its role in spreading divisive and extreme messages. I came forward because I believe that every human being deserves the dignity of the truth. The severity of this crisis demands that we break out of our previous regulatory frames. Facebook wants to trick you into thinking that privacy protections or changes to Section 230 alone will be sufficient. While important, these will not get to the core of the issue, which is that no one truly understands the destructive choices made by Facebook except Facebook. We can afford nothing less than full transparency. Breaking out of regulatory frames and getting more transparency is exactly what the European Union has been doing against social media companies. You might remember all the conversation around GDPR, or the General Data Protection Regulation, that went into effect in 2018. The European Union's law protecting users' personal data was just the beginning of even more legislation aimed at curbing social media's reach and influence. So I asked Dr. Tucker over at NYU what his take is on how the European Union is handling social media regulation and if it's a model we should follow in the U.S. I mean, my big picture take on this is that we want to be careful about getting into worlds where we take things that are goods, that are good for society, but we don't consider the trade-offs of implementing those goods. So let me tell you two things that are good for society, right? One thing is to respect people's privacy, give them control over their data, to make sure that if I post something on Facebook, you know, nobody else knows about it who I don't want to know about what I posted there. That's good. No one's going to argue with you and say, oh, data privacy, that's a terrible idea. Like people should lose control of whatever they put into the internet. On the other hand, understanding what the impact of social media platforms on democracy, right? My co-author Nate personally wrote an article called Can Democracy Survive the Internet, right? Like we need to know the answers to those questions. And in order for us to know the answers to those questions, people need to be able to analyze social media data. They need to be able to run the kinds of studies that are necessary to see if we can test causal implications, which sometimes involves the cooperation of the platforms, involves the platforms doing things so we can run these studies. That's also a good, like we in society we as a public want to know what the advent of these platforms has done to our society. We want to know about it for democracy. We want to know about it for teenagers, you know, health. There's a lot of things that we want to know about for it. Those are both goods in the sense of like thinking of positive things. But if we think of them in isolation from each other, then we could put people's privacy at risk by running ahead. And, you know, the best way we could learn from Facebook data is to plop all of Facebook data out as open source intelligence and let have it, right? Like we'd learn a ton from it. But obviously that's a step too far and that's going to put everyone's privacy at risk. And there's going to be tremendous harms that can come from that. The best way we could keep stuff private is to tell Facebook and Twitter that they could never release the data to anybody who doesn't work for their company. 
Well, then we're in a world where these incredibly powerful companies, which are about to be now controlled by the richest man in the world and for Twitter and one of the richest men in the world for Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg, right? Do we really want them to be the only ones who are learning anything from all this data that has, at the end of the day, been provided to them by the mass public? So that's my, like, where are we on this? Is I think we really need to consider this an optimization problem across two things that we care about. The public's right to know what the impact of these platforms are and individual right to privacy. And we want to think about optimizing over both of those and not think about them independently. And I think when GDPR first came out, my concern was it was leaning too far in the privacy direction. There is a research exemption in GDPR. And in the beginning, it looked like that didn't really mean anything. And now, thanks to the work of Rebecca Trumbull and others, I think they are getting ready to put some meat on that and some teeth into that. And so it still remains to be seen. So the first thing I'd recommend is that you reach out to Rebecca Trumbull, who is a professor at George Washington University, who used to be working in Europe and has been working really closely about this research about the, with GDPR around mm -hmm. the kind of research exemption. She's the best person who can nice. tell you about this. And so I did reach out to Dr. Rebecca Trumbull. We'll hear from her after the break, as well as a venture capitalist who has some pretty strong opinions about funding the next big social media platform. This episode of Creative Control is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. As I mentioned before the break, Dr. Tucker over at NYU suggested I reach out to Dr. Rebecca Trumbull, and I'm so glad he did. So shout out to you, Dr. Tucker. Dr. Trumbull is the director of the Institute for Data, Democracy, and Politics at George Washington University, and she's really been one of the researchers at the forefront of Europe's efforts in regulating social media. So I asked this question of Dr. Joshua Tucker over at NYU, and he encouraged me to reach out to you for your particular expertise. So That's nice of him. I know. <laughs> What's your take on the European Union's approach to regulating social media and big tech overall? Like, are they going about it the right way? I do think that the European Union is going about regulating tech in the right way. They are certainly being more um, aggressive than we're seeing in the United States. But that said, they're not being overly aggressive. So there are a couple of key measures that uh, should be coming out quite soon. There's the Digital Markets Act, which is an antitrust regulation. And then there's the Digital Services Act. Um, and in fact, we expect the language of the Digital Services Act, the final language, to be published at the end of this month, at the end of May. Um, and that legislation focuses more on the sort of platform accountability issues, right? What are the good and bad things that are happening um, on social media and online? Um, so that's where you get some of the, the pieces on content moderation and so on, but it's much more than, than content moderation. Right. And so how do you think we're doing here in the U.S. with our approach to regulating social media? Short answer is we're doing nothing. Cool. <laughs> so there isn't much to speak of. Right. Uh, yeah. Why do you think that is? Like, why do you think the European Union has been, it really feels like light years ahead of the U.S. in in instituting these regulations? Like, why is the U.S. so far behind? Well, there are a couple of reasons. One is the long-term reason, and one is the sort of shorter-term or nearer-term reason. 
The long-term reason is that Europe in general and, and European countries broadly have always been more willing to regulate than we have been in the U.S. Uh, it's just a sort of fundamental cultural difference. Um, it's a difference of, of views of the roles of regulations in, in everyday life. That's been around for a very long time. Um, more recently, although it's not you know just in the last few years, but more recently, it's certainly the, the political dynamics that we're seeing develop in the United States. It's the high degree of partisan polarization um, that really makes it difficult to get almost anything done in the U.S. right now legislatively. And it makes it particularly difficult to do the big, hard things um, like tech regulation. Right? There's no denying that tech regulation is hard. This is not a simple matter. There's no... Um, one one simple solution that we can wave our magic wand and say that we're going to fix the tech sector. Um, and doing hard things is particularly hard in the U.S. right now. Hmm. And so do you think the EU's approach to regulating big tech, should that be a copy and paste job for the U.S.? Or is there anything that's left on the table? Is there anything that they're, that they're not considering that, that we should be considering? It can't ever be a true pure copy and paste, simply because in the U.S. we have the First Amendment. Mm -hmm. um, that First Amendment. <laughs> exactly. We have this, this fundamental commitment to free speech that though, right, I want, I want to be very careful and clear that the European Union and Europeans broadly are very much supportive of free speech and freedom of expression. But it isn't in the, the sort of foundation. They don't have the First Amendment as, as a barrier in the same way that it is here. They don't put it on T-shirts over there. <laughs> exactly. And, and so, you know, they can do things around content moderation, for example, that would probably be stru struck down quite quickly in the U.S. Hmm. That said, I think there are a lot of pieces in the approach that, that the EU is taking right now that could be fairly effectively translated to the U.S. So, for example, in the Digital Services Act, they're taking basically a risk mitigation approach. Um, and so they're focusing on transparency issues, making sure that there are independent audits, that the platforms are sharing information that allows European citizens to understand whether and how the platforms are having an impact on those citizens' fundamental rights. And then once we have that sort of peek in, that transparency over the impacts of the platforms, then the European law takes the next steps to say where there are real risks or where there are indeed harms, the platforms have to take measurable steps to improve, to reduce those risks, to mitigate those harms. And I know for proper government regulation of social media and big tech, there needs to be proper research about how these companies really work. And I know that this is an area that you've really been, you've been instrumental in really, and, you know, sitting on doing different projects and, you know, sitting on boards and everything. So from your point of view as an academic in this space, how has it been working with big tech and these platforms? Oh, it's been a real challenge. Um, it's yeah. been really difficult. Um, you know, there's something that that we talk about in academia um, that that a couple of colleagues, um, but my colleague at uh, UNC, Dean Freelon in particular, has referred to as the API apocalypse. Oh, wow. um, and it's you know it's a it's a bit of a wonky term, but it refers to this moment after the Cambridge Facebook Cambridge Analytica scandal when they got in trouble for selling on a bunch of 
really um, uh, sensitive user data um, to the company Cambridge Analytica and basically violated a bunch of people's privacy. Facebook and then a number of other companies just shut down access to these data sources. And to be fair, it was, you know, it was a little bit of a wild west, even for academics in that time. And, and we can't say that all academics were using that data responsibly. But we went from this sort of free-for-all to then absolutely nothing. And now we're in this world, post-2018, where researchers really struggle to get the sort of information, the sort of data that they need in order to really understand what the impacts of the platforms are. Um, and so this is an issue that, you know, I have been working on since that moment in 2018, where there was this sort of just complete closure, shutdown of our access to find ways that we can not turn it into the Wild West again. We don't want that. What we want is access to data that is um, achieved responsibly, ethically, and with the user's rights and privacy in mind from the start. But we're just, we're in a situation where it is only the platforms that have access to that information. So they get to slurp it up. They get to know everything about us. They get to use it for commercial and other purposes but then they don't have to be held accountable in any way, shape, or form. And so our goal is to ensure that those who are working in the public interest can access that same information in order to serve the users and society as a whole. I was just about to ask, knowing that in the U.S. that regulation is, I don't want to say moving slow, just pure stagnant at this point, how are you working around that, if at all? So some of the things um, that we're doing, right, we're, we're working with users as much as we can directly. So reaching out to Facebook and, and you know, other social media users and asking them to share their data directly with us. Um, this is what's often referred to as data donation. Um, and, you know, if we can get a good, large enough and representative sample of Facebook users who donate their data to us, because I don't know that, that many, you know, Facebook users realize this, but you can actually download, right, most of the data that or certain forms of the data that Facebook has collected on you. You share that then with researchers and we have, we can crack open that black box a little bit more. It's not perfect though, right? It's, it's far from perfect. Um, and so it's those sorts of creative workarounds that we're, we're left using at the moment. And they definitely help, but they don't go nearly far enough. Hmm. And I feel like many people think, and I agree, that we're at some sort of tipping point as it pertains to the public discourse around privacy, around misinformation, around mental health. I mean, these social media platforms are clearly having a measurable effect on society and politics. And so... Where do you, from your point of view, like, where do you see all of this going? Like right now, knowing that there is this increased conversation, people talking about these issues, where do you see this going? It's so hard to say. And, and to be honest with you, I sort of vacillate between, you know, move right back and forth between optimism in one moment and complete <laughs> pessimism in another. Where are you today? Um, <laughs> today, I'm honestly a little bit more in the pessimistic, on the pessimistic side. It's hard to see our way out of this. Yeah. And I think if there's any real hope, it will be Europe that's leading the way. Um, and, and the truth is that the, the European regulation that's in the pipeline is going to have impact far beyond Europe. 
um, you know, those sorts of, of studies and audits that the platforms are going to have to open themselves up to. Um, they'll be focused on the impacts on European citizens, but we'll be able to say a lot about what the likely impacts are on American citizens based on what's found in Europe. The sorts of changes they have to make to the platforms should impact users worldwide. So there I do have a bit of optimism, um, but in terms of, you know, how we might sort of wrest the public's power back and, and achieve fundamental accountability for the platforms in the U.S., I remain unfortunately pretty pessimistic overall. You know, I hate to end on a pessimistic note. You got, just got, give me something happy, Dr. Trumbull. Give me something happy. <laughs> something happy. I think there's actually um, a lot to be happy about if you look outside of the regulatory space itself. You look to the scholars and activists who are really passionate about making these social media spaces better and safer for a variety of communities. I am seeing so many people who are putting in the hard work, the time, and the effort, who have dedicated their lives to trying to make things better and try to protect um, users and communities online. And as long as that spirit continues, um, I think there, there is hope for the future. The solutions aren't probably going to come from our policymakers in D.C. Dr. Trumbull is right. These solutions aren't going to come from lawmakers, at least not anytime soon. Watchdog groups, whistleblowers, and researchers have been instrumental in trying to make these social media platforms a safer destination. But what about the people funding these companies to begin with? To weigh in on this, I called Bradley Tusk. He's a political strategist and venture capitalist, so he's right at the intersection of everything we've been talking about. And it's VCs like him who are investing in what could be the next Facebook or TikTok. So to start, I asked him straight up, should social media companies be regulated in the first place? Yes, absolutely. Just take a step back and think about what do we want government to do? What are the basic functions of government? And some of it are things like things that require collective action. So building a school or a road or operating a military. But a lot of it really is about protecting individuals from harm, right? Consumer protection, whether it's at the municipal level, the state level, the federal level, and arguably other than guns, maybe the most harmful thing in our society right now is social media. Wow. Whether it's Twitter or Instagram or TikTok or Facebook or anything else. Um, and yet, despite the damage that we know it does, all the ranging from what we've learned about the shooter in, in Buffalo and everything that he said and did online to the impact of, on teenage girls of Instagram around eating disorders and, and you know misinformation in elections and everything else. This is an incredibly harmful product. It doesn't mean it should be abolished entirely, but it doesn't mean it, it does mean at least that some element of consumer protection should exist. And I would argue that the government, especially the federal government, has really dropped the ball on this. Mm. So what does effective regulation of social media look like? A couple of things. So there's a few laws in Washington that either could be created or changed that would probably make a really big difference. So the first is there's something called Section 230 of the Telecommunications Decency Act. What that does is it protects platforms from litigation for what's posted on the platform. So if I say something mean about you on Twitter, you can sue me for defamation, but you can't sue Twitter, right? As a result, if you think about the economic model for all these platforms, they make money by selling advertising. And the more clicks, the more money they make. And as much as we all say we don't like negativity, 
Controversy drives eyeballs. Controversy drives clicks. So it's in the financial interest of these platforms to have the platforms be as toxic as possible because that makes them more money. Hmm. However, Europe just passed something called the Digital Services Act that removed that kind of liability protection. And I believe we need to do that here in the U.S. as well. In fact, in the 2020 presidential race, one of the only things that Joe Biden and Donald Trump agreed on was that we should get rid of Section 230 or at least change it. Um, Of course, Washington being Washington, nothing ever gets done. Um, But the first thing is if Facebook or Twitter or whoever have to start dealing with litigation for the content, they would do a much, much better job of moderating it and they would take it much more seriously. So that's the first piece. The second piece is in the U.S., we have no control over our data, no privacy. They can monetize our information without us having any choice whatsoever. And that's wrong. So Europe, again, has been ahead of us here. They have a system called GDPR, which basically just means you have you own your own data. Um, you have the right to be forgotten if you want to be. If they're going to monetize your data, it has to be with your consent. And it's not a radically different experience that people have here in the U.S., but it's far more protective of individuals than what we have right now. There's basically no consumer protection when it comes to data um, in the U.S. on social media, and we really need that. The third is stronger antitrust laws and prosecution. So the biggest companies in the world right now are tech companies, Amazon, Apple, Google, Microsoft, Facebook, and so on. And they need regulation and they need oversight just in the way that Standard Oil did in the early 1900s or the Ma Bell did in the telephone companies from the 1950s. They are too big, they are too powerful, and they've got to be broken up. So you can envision a world, say, for Facebook, where Facebook is one company, Instagram is one company, and WhatsApp is one company. Um, Those are the kind of changes that would be really helpful. The FTC so far has not been successful in achieving any of this. So there's a lot that could be done. And and just to sort of make you feel even slightly more depressed, um, (laughs) as the metaverse comes, and it's coming, right? It's here. (laughs) Everything that's good about the internet, I believe, will be 10 times better. And everything that's bad about the internet will be 10 times worse. Oh, I agree 1,000%. This is going to go in both directions at rapid speed. So it's, yeah, I... If you're worried now about the impact of these platforms, if we don't get ahead of it now, the damage is going to be sort of both exponential and maybe too late to solve. Right. And you wrote a recent op-ed for us at Fast Company explaining how some of the responsibility of potentially harmful tech rests with venture capitalists like yourself to be more discerning with the companies that they back. And so knowing the negative impact that some of these tech companies, some of these social media platforms can have, how has that informed your decisions and what startups you want to invest in? Yeah, that's a great question. So look, for two reasons, I really almost can't invest in social media platforms. For reason number one is I worry about the negative impact that it has on society. And look, I have two teenage kids, so I feel like I have appreciation for the specific harms of, of social media. In fact, the only one that I have invested in is a platform called Exalt. That's the anti-Twitter, anti-Instagram, only positive content. I'm just, I don't know whether it will succeed, <laughs> but, but that was the one thing we did. But the other problem is, I can't invest in potential competitors to Facebook or Twitter or Google or whatever it is because they can't compete because these companies are monopolies. And and the notion of some early stage company out of someone's garage being able to take on Amazon is basically impossible. And that ultimately stifles innovation, right? So not only do you want some regulation to be able to sort of protect consumers, 
You also need to be able to allow for new innovation. And look, every big company, even the ones right now that we think are doing a great job with R&D, the Microsofts of the world, they all eventually get stagnant and die, right? You know, IBM or Hitachi or General Electric, these are all companies that we never could have imagined would fade by the wayside, but they all have because that's just how things work. Once companies become giant bureaucracies, stagnation eventually sets in. They don't really innovate at the same level. And if we don't have new tech startups coming up, seed, series A, series B, to offer new ideas, um, we're really going to miss a lot of opportunity, a lot of jobs, and a lot of innovation. But I'll give you another example from, from a piece that I wrote, which is Jewel, right? So I, I fund was pitched Jewel several different times. What my fund does specifically is we operated that intersection of tech and politics, which makes probably sense everything I'm talking about. <laughs> like why, why do you want to make life hard for yourself, huh? <laughs> right. And Jewel you know, wanted us to not only invest, but then to sort of run the campaigns to make sure that they wouldn't face any type of new regulation or crackdowns or anything else. My view was like, look, if you guys just want to replace cigarette smoking for adults with vaping, that's a valid conversation, right? I don't know what the health difference is or not, but it's a fair conversation to have. But, you know, if, you're, if your flavors are cotton candy and banana daiquiri and all of this right. stuff, you're clearly going after kids. And if you're doing that, I'm not going to invest. And I'm glad that I didn't. And look, would my fund have made more money if we had at that stage? Absolutely. But you know what? I don't think a single one of my LPs regrets it at all. And so there are times where it's obvious that you shouldn't invest. And in those times, you just shouldn't do so. There are other times where the harm isn't necessarily clear at the moment. So I don't blame anyone who invested in Twitter in 2007, 2008, for the problems on the platform today. But I do think that those people ought to at least recognize what the harm has been caused by their investments and evolve from that and have different behavior going forward and not solely be governed by what can generate the greatest return for my fund at any given moment. So yeah, the opportunity and, and the responsibility, it lies with the platforms, it lies with the government, but it also lies with VCs like me. Right. And so what questions do you ask yourself or what should VCs ask themselves like when they're thinking about this? Because if somebody comes to them with a platform like, you know, oh, this is a photo sharing app, something like Instagram, similarly enough, it seems innocuous, right? It seems like they, it doesn't seem like it could be this great societal ill. And so at this point, knowing what we know now, what are those questions that people who are funding these companies at these early stages and getting them to the levels of, you know, the metas of the world, the Twitters of the world, all that, what are those questions that they should be asking? What are those questions that you ask? Keep in mind, every early stage venture capitalist is already asking the question of, the potential societal impact of this startup, because if you don't think that whatever it is, startup, whatever good or product or service they're selling will be embraced by consumers, there's no reason to invest in the first place. So you're already looking forward to saying, okay, if this company is at scale, how will it impact things? How will it change the mass transit industry, the hotel industry, the casino industry, whatever it is? So we're all already in that state of mind because we can't do our jobs otherwise. What it requires is going a little further and saying, okay, do I think consumers will like or not like this thing? Do I think it makes sense to invest in this founder or not? And okay, let's assume the founder succeeds. Let's assume consumers do like it. Is that a good thing for society, right? And yeah, you're absolutely right. When people invested in Instagram when they first were created, again, I don't blame them for sort of not seeing the harm in a, in a photo sharing app. But 15 years later, um, if someone else came around with a photo sharing app, you'd want to ask the question of like, okay, 
what's the end goal here and what does this really mean? Um, and I think just as we learn more and do more, our responsibility to ask questions just continues to grow. And look, we can make the wrong decisions, but at least if we're going at it the right way, uh, we have a much better shot at getting it right. So who needs to be in the room to help form this regulation? Because there's a lot of different people with different opinions on how we should go about it. And I think from the government level, we've seen that a lot of these lawmakers don't have a fundamental understanding of how these social media platforms work in the first place. Mark Zuckerberg always has his best day when he's being uh, questioned by Congress. I know. (laughs) He could just skip through these questions without a care in the world. And so it's, we all know that regulation needs to happen, but I don't have, me myself, I don't have the most faith in the lawmakers, like really knowing what, what needs to be done. So who needs to be in the room to have effective legislation? You definitely need people who are regulators in government, like at the Federal Trade Commission, to be part of this process. You need advocates for internet reform, privacy reform, all that to be part of this process. You need academics who study these issues to be part of this process. You need people from the platforms themselves, right? You're not going to regulate them without getting their own views on things. And you may not agree with it or do what they want, but you shouldn't close yourself off to hearing from them. And then finally, you need people in business, in venture capital, who aren't affected by these platforms or don't have a stake in, in, in their outcome, but ultimately are the people who kind of fuel innovation and, and tech growth broadly and say, okay, what would you guys do? And I think if you have those six categories all together and an effective leader, you'd have the ability to at least develop the standards for regulation that could be effective. Um, again, keyword there is, is effective. Um, we don't see a lot of that out of Washington. Hmm. And, you know, speaking of Washington, how do you see this whole conversation around regulating big tech, regulating these social media platforms? How do you see this playing out in this year of like it being a midterm year and in two years in the next presidential election? So my guess is that it probably won't be a gating issue in most midterm elections um, simply because other things like inflation, mm-hmm. uh, Roe v. Wade. Ukraine, they're just, there are other issues that I think are more immediately pressing to people that will probably dominate, um, dominate the campaigns. But if we assume that the pundits are right and that the House flips Republican and perhaps the Senate does too, then the question is, with a Democratic White House and a Republican Congress, is there any chance of actually passing any sort of reform and legislation around this? I think the answer is potentially yes, because, you know, one thing that Facebook has done really well is they've united the left and the right against them, right? That they all, they all, they all in common is they all hate Facebook. Right. And so you could see a world where maybe it requires a bipartisan solution where you have, you know, uh, House and, and Senate leaders who are Republican and a Biden White House together saying, look, we disagree on most stuff, but we all agree that this thing is necessary and important, and that's how we're going to get it done. Now, I'm giving you a very Pollyannish optimistic uh outcome here i'll take it i'll take it listen look at the look at the world we live in i'll take as many pollyannas as i can but the other thing is this which is the biden administration i would argue can be much more aggressive than they have been so far in using their own rulemaking powers executive orders administrative rulemaking to make changes here um yes those are not permanent so the next president could undo whatever they do but if you assume that Congress is effectively a lost cause, I mean, literally the phrase, an act of Congress is now synonymous with a miracle, right? So when that's the case, you can't rely on that. 
And they've got to be much more aggressive. Okay, Department of Justice, Federal Communications Commission, Federal Trade Commission, whatever, Commerce Department, whatever it is, what can you do through your own administrative powers to have an impact here? And, and if, if the Biden administration is working on that, we're, what, a year and a half into their presidency now, I haven't seen any evidence of it at all. I hope these past three episodes have given you some insight into this complicated and murky world of social media platforms and algorithms. I think the general consensus here is that no one's saying that social media shouldn't exist or that there's no good that comes from it. But there should be more serious attempts to curb the negative effects these platforms can have. The European Union has at least gotten the conversation started. How, if, and when that conversation trickles over to the U.S. in a meaningful way is TBD. And I know, I know, it can be difficult to be optimistic about all of this, but clearly there are some pretty sharp minds thinking about these issues at every angle. That's going to do it for this episode of Creative Control. Make sure you subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And of course, make sure you rate and comment as well. We love hearing from you. Fast Company podcasts are produced by Avery Miles, Blake Odom, and Matt Toder. Editing and sound design is by Nicholas Torres. Our executive producer is Joshua Christensen. Deputy editor David Litsky provided editorial oversight for this episode, as well as senior VP of entertainment, Scott Mebus. Scott Mebus.